0: Aussies only, thanks to GLG Green Life Group, leaders in property services and open space management. At GLGcorp.com. Well, it's our first edition of Aussies Only for 2023. All part of the first serve. You would have heard the voice of Lou Fleming across media in tennis for a long, long time, but also a part of our broadcast as well with the Australian Open and various other things in recent times and Lou nice to have you on to kick off the year.
1: Yeah thanks so much Darren happy to be here.
0: Great to have you on now we know that uh, Wagga is a a very rich sporting region for Australia be it football with the likes of Wayne Carey cricket with Mark Taylor and Michael Slater and and those sorts as well but I understand you hail from the Riverina as well.
1: Yeah I do I didn't always live in Wagga I grew up on a on a farm uh, out near area park, actually. So uh, my mum and dad lived out there. I guess he had wheat and sheep and cows and all that sort of thing. So grew up uh, on a farm with uh, yeah, six other brothers and sisters.
0: I imagine with a lot of those regional areas that that sport is a big part of the local community and a big part of family life how did it start for you was it always tennis or were there a few other things
1: yeah look I I remember gosh it would have been in early 70s mum and dad came home had a you know we always had a black and white tv I do remember the day we we got a colored one but it was before that I remember watching Yvonne Goolagong and different players playing at Wimbledon and just really it took my eye I'd sit up all night watching you know in the lounge room by myself and for some reason I really connected to tennis and I I guess in area park we had a, a wall there was a wall and there was um, a couple of tennis courts, but that was about it. So after school, if you know we were in town, I'd end up hitting on the wall and and really just enjoying playing tennis a lot of the time on my own. Early on also, do you remember Vic Edwards? He used to go around to country towns. I mean, he coached Yvonne Goolagong and a lot of the, the pros back then. And he used to send a guy by the name of Keith Smith to Bar Medman and all these tiny little towns. And And luckily enough, when I was about five or six, um, my mum and dad drove me to one of those and, and that was it. I think I hit 50 balls over the net one day when I was about five or six. And Keith said, gosh, you, you remind me of someone. And, you know, when they were early on and he said, yeah, Yvonne Gulagong. she was so raw and she hit a lot of balls over and, and that was it. I was kind of like, oh, maybe I should play tennis. Yeah, that was kind of the start. But you're right, like in country areas, you you do get exposed to everything. I think my memories of being at school was trying to be the best at at everything, running, jumping, you know, I just loved athletics, anything that meant being physical and and running around and being active
0: obviously you're, you're young and you're at school and the, the world's your oyster so to speak how did it develop from the point of I really enjoy playing tennis to I'm pretty good at playing tennis to I could make a life out of this how did that sort of progress uh, before, I guess once you, you realize that yeah this can take me somewhere
1: yeah we moved we sold up the farm we moved from area park to wagga when I was about eight or nine and then I could engage in more regular Tennis coaching and and I could go down to the the tennis club more often and and get into weekend tennis and play as often as I could and I think at that stage I felt I was a really good athlete and I could run I probably just lacked that little bit of skill in terms of hitting a lot of balls so I was always a little bit of a late bloomer in a way because when I'd go to Sydney to the New South Wales juniors and different events the girls were a lot more consistent to me you know I was playing tennis in Wagga against the the local farmers and maybe the, you know, the the pharmacist or the school teacher or the, you know, mostly men. So I was, I was getting to play against guys and that sort of thing, but you just didn't get that consistency. So I'd say I was always a little bit of a late bloomer. Um, I always could compete with the girls at a young age if it was on grass, because I could serve and volley and play short points and And that way I could stay with them. But to go and play on clay and, yeah, I initially, I guess, left Wagga. There was a coach that came down from Wollongong and he said, why don't you come and live in Wollongong and um, then you can really, I guess, get absorbed into some of those tennis squads and that sort of thing. So I got into the tennis squad up in New South Wales and, um, yeah, started kind of from there and, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it all happened. I, I think I was pretty young. I remember about the age of 16, I used to go up to Sydney every day. Oh, probably 15, I'd go up to Sydney every day from Wollongong. I was with the Terry Rockovert squad. Decided to go overseas when I was about probably 16. So that's when, yeah, mum said, yeah, go to, go to Italy and, yeah, try your hand at playing professional tennis. I, I remember mum flying down from Wagga to Sydney, met me at the airport, gave me a hundred dollars and said, good luck. Yeah. Enjoy your trip overseas and don't lose the money. And here's a credit card. Well, by the time I'd landed in Rome on Alitalia's flight I got to the hotel in the city in Rome and I realized I'd left my wallet on the flight lost my hundred bucks lost my credit card and yeah felt for the first time I was pretty much had to be independent and get cracking and, and play some good tennis
0: spoken to a lot of young players and, and they say that that's the thing they they learn how to grow up really quickly you're, you're living away from home you got to do your own washing you're paying your own bills as a teenager and, and that type of thing how how difficult is that when you're all also, trying to launch a new career often against players that are twice your age, conceivably, and have been doing it for a long time.
1: Yeah, I think it's tough. It's a really huge learning curve, and I think you know all the things. If I if I kind of um, look back on that first year, if I had have told my parents what had happened that first year, the things that you learn, the the men that you run into at hotels and hotel managers and what you get up against, um, what you know happens, you kind of think, gosh, I don't know how I kind of got through a lot of those things. But I think if I had have said to my parents, yeah, I had some pretty, you know, odd and very strange interactions with um, people over that time, they probably said, no, you won't be traveling anymore by yourself. But you learn from that, you know, not to put yourself in those situations, you learn how to sniff out danger. And I personally think all the things that I learned in those first couple of years were the the critical learning curves, um, or the learning kind of lessons that you carry for the rest of your life. And I think the lessons that you do learn yourself, they're the ones that really mean the most as well, I think, because it's kind of like putting your finger in boiling water, you don't want to do that a few, a few too many times, because it hurts. So whereas if someone says, you know, you're going to do this, and you're going to learn this, and, um, you know, back in my day, when we did this, you know, that sort of, it doesn't stick really with you as much as those really hard falls that you have early on.
0: Yeah, and obviously everybody's journey is unique and, and those falls are never exactly the same. As your career progressed, transitioned a bit into doubles, obviously got into the 250s in, in singles, but won 10 uh, ITF-level titles in, in doubles. You you made a WTA final, ironically, on clay, based on what you were mentioning uh, earlier. Uh, you won multiple matches at, at all four of the, the majors. Can you sort of tell us... Talk about the career progression and and even how that doubles transition came to be.
1: Yeah, I think very early on i mean i i had just missed out on a lot of that kind of ability to play a lot of matches in singles to get that confidence so as a young as a young athlete you know at school i was representing the school in running in netball in i think 9 different sports i i kind of represented the the school i played new south wales state softball And there was a stage there, whether I had to say tennis or softball. So for me, I missed out on a lot of that formative, that real deep playing a lot of juniors and and winning a lot of matches at that singles level. So for me, it was, how am I going to survive? It was always survival mode. And immediately when I went to Europe, because I lost that hundred bucks, I had to think of ways to, to manage. So if I was getting to doubles finals and immediately, I think my very first tournament I played, I... I won a ten thousand, and then the next week went to Kitzbühel, won another ten thousand, and I just kept doing well. Or you know, you'd get to the finals, and that was enough to keep you basically in a hotel for the week, and and it would keep you uh, with making a little bit of money and in the tournament. So quickly that was my strategy for survival, and and then I think it's really hard to change that if you, you're doing well in doubles, then you're not quite getting there. And you're getting that practice in your singles. You can't get in the qualifying. And over years, you start to develop, I've got confidence in doubles, but not so much in singles. I think I met a. I was training in Los Angeles. I, I moved to Los Angeles and had some really good coaches over there. And they challenged me. They said, Louise, you know, you've never had the opportunity to, to really focus on singles because you never had that support. I think early on, I missed out on getting into the AIS. Ray Ruffles and those guys were picking it. I think there were eight girls that got picked. And I, years later, Ray said to me, I'm sorry, you didn't get into the AIS because you were those, one of those country kids that love tennis. And we didn't see, I guess, that, you know, you had that, we saw that you, you know, you had the talent, but we didn't know if you were going to, you know, have that same commitment. And they thought, I remember him saying that Helen Goulet said, oh, I think you had too much of a personality and you were probably going to be a disruptor. So, you know, you look back and you kind of think, yeah, had I had I got that training and had that, that depth of coaching, I would have gotten the confidence and maybe would have had that, you know, better stepping stone into the singles career. But really it was, for me, it was survival mode. How was I going to keep moving up and, and play grand slams, and that's what you really want to do, and it was just easier to do that in doubles than in singles. So, But what I was going to say, I got to L.A., and I was with some guys training there. They said to me, look, we'll pay you, if you go and play singles, we'll pay you for every match that you win, so don't worry about doubles. And I, I focused on singles for a little bit, and I qualified for a WTA event. Qualified, it was in Japan, so I got into my first WTA And it was at the end of the year and my ranking was 299 at the end of the year. And it was the first year that the WTA said, if you're outside the top 300, you can't play qualifying the next year. January 1, I think my ranking went to 302. And so for that year, I missed out. I couldn't play any WTA events in singles. So that was that was just, yeah, it's just one of those things that happened, but I was really focusing on singles at that stage. And then the pause button hit. So it was just back to doubles.
0: Do you look at it the, the coaching you now, the, the way that perhaps some of the better singles players, certainly on the women's side, have had that sort of doubles grounding. You look at Sam Stozer, who played a lot of doubles and had success. Ash Barty won a, a US Open and played multiple finals before she got to that level. Caroline Garcia, even Egas Fiontek. Uh, arena sabalenka won doubles slams azarenka those sorts of players that, that it, it is something that can really assist particularly if you're at the top end of the game and you don't have to worry about qualifying and things like that that, that there is a way that it could make your, your singles game better
1: oh absolutely winning matches you know and getting your confidence just being on a tennis court and winning is really infectious and it's great for your confidence but you need to have that person next to you as well that's helping you explore your singles and to get that confidence And I think if you Look at all those plays. Sam had Dave, you know, certainly Ash had Craig, and you've got to have that, that person that's really instilling that genuine confidence and that skill set of moving differently, constructing points differently. And I think, yes, on that confidence level, if you've got that person, I think it's a it's a great way to make that next step. There's no question about it. And for a lot of players, they need that that financial assistance, particularly in Australia. I think we don't see that same level of backing that you see of a lot of players that come out of the US. A lot of parents are quite wealthy. You know, from a young age, you, you'll you see a player out there traveling with a coach at the age of 15, 16. That's astronomically so financially demanding on families. And in Europe, you'll see a lot of the very best players coming out of Eastern Bloc countries and and russia and different places where they've got a coach and they've had that offer of financial agreement or something where either it's a payback or whatever but I think it's almost impossible to break through without the real support of a great coach. There's there's really no question about that. You need to have that.
0: It's a good transition. Obviously, you, you did move into coaching and had a really successful tenure. Can you tell us about that transition? Obviously, 2006, you were appointed the, the national touring coach as well, but the journey started a, a bit before that.
1: I got a phone call from Tennis Australia. Craig Morris, I think, was in charge at that time, and he just said, "Lou." Would you be interested in taking the Junior Fed Cup team away? And I, I thought that'd be a great challenge and I love that opportunity. And yeah, with our team, it was Bella Holland, Sally Piers, and Olivia Rogowska. And we, we went to Italy. Um, We had an unbelievable week. We'd beaten the American team. I think it was like Coco Vanderway and a whole bunch of really good players that were on the, that were about to go on the tour in the next couple of years. Then we beat, I think we beat Russia, then in the, the semi-finals. And then I think we beat Italy in the finals and it was unbelievable. I, yeah, I really felt I could get that message across to get the youngsters. I think, the number one thing in coaching is 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 getting their trust and giving them that sense of direction and that that they have that confidence that if you really do understand how you need to play um, and what your strengths are, and you can make them feel you know really I guess comfortable out there on the court. You know that that is what I missed and I felt that is what I wanted to give that that sense of real comfort and sense of security on the tennis court.
0: Uh, in regards to, to that as well, um, I was going to ask about philosophy and, and that you've always been described as someone who's very positive and, and very encouraging and uh, very active, I guess, in that in that coaching space. So I imagine a little bit of what you were saying before about identifying the significance of it and then executing that to, to make sure that your players have that support network.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is the critical kind of part of really getting them to understand what they're good at yeah and and how to not always beat a player with power and strength but also how to make someone down the other end of the court feel a little uncomfortable and i think I think we've learned a lot from watching Ash Barty and how she really under, you know, she kind of makes her opponents feel uncomfortable and dismantles their confidence. And it's understanding also that down the other end of the court, everyone feels a little insecure. And it's just trying to to find that, to keep scratching at the surface, just to say, yeah, I'm going to find your weakness. And, and for them to know that yeah, both players on the court, it's it's really a game of, it's a mental game and you've got to try to be that, that tougher one out there on the court and keep thinking about the things you're working on because at the end of the game, everything is about the process that you've been working on. I think a lot of our um, stresses and anxieties, I think, comes from all the external things that happen outside the court. I want to win for my parents. I want to win for Tennis Australia because they're paying for my coach or I want to do all the things that perhaps aren't really coming from, you know, your your own sense of desire. And I think you've got to really break that all down and bring it back to what is the purpose that you are, why you are playing but also what is the process and what are those key things you're trying to get out of out of your own tennis? And every time you walk on the court, there's a way of having those little wins. It's not just whether I won or lost the match. It's not whether I won or lost the tournament because you get to play for many, many years and it's gotta be a really positive journey. And I think there's a lot of kids, I think today, and it's not just in tennis, I think young people are putting so much pressure on themselves. Social media plays a big part, you know, and I, I think also in the whole world of tennis, there's also that pressures, there's gambling involved, there's a lot of other pressures that that come on the the shoulders of these young children, and we really have to give them great support.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, everybody's trying to do the same thing, but only, you know, a handful of people can get there. And obviously, in a match only, or in a tournament, there's only one person that, that ultimately gets that end result, so there's got to be other ways to obviously achieve what you're, you're trying to achieve through all of that as I understand it roughly the same time that the coaching transition started was that when the, the commentary and the, the media sort of kicked in I think it was at late 90s early 2000s and how did that come about
1: quite interesting actually I was I was playing the US Open and Pat Rafter was a, a good mate and I think Steve and Pat one day it was at the US Open 90 it would have been about 96 was the second year or the first year that he won the US Open I can't exactly remember now and Pat said to me oh you're going to watch my match and I ended up watching one of his I think second round matches and then you know family were after, were like well you better come to the next match so then I just kept putting off my travel date leaving and stayed there until he won the US Open that year and it was phenomenal and Paul McNamee just came up to me and he said look Lou you get on with all the players he said would you be open to commentating at Hopman Cup uh, over the summer I was still playing and I thought yeah I'd love to I'd love to give it uh, a shot and uh, I obviously had no experience and Back then, when you started commentating, you, you just were thrown into the seat with some headsets on, and away you went. Luckily, I was working with um Fred Stolly, and Fred would jab me and say, "Lou, you you know just uh, you might be repeating yourself a bit too much, or you know you might be doing this or that." He was re- he was gorgeous. He really helped me, but yeah, I think after that week, I. I think I had a nice chat with Paul and he said, well, you were pretty average, Lou. And I, I kind of thought, all right, well, maybe that's it. I won't get any more opportunities. And then ABC Sports really enjoyed having me on board. And so every year then they were like, come on back. And you just learn, I guess you learn when to talk, when not to talk and you know what you should be kind of extracting out of the game. And someone early on said, you know, Lou. Whatever you do when you're commentating, don't make no statements. You know, like try to always see something that's happening that the the viewers that are sitting at home aren't unable to see. So yeah, it's been a really fun journey for me. I, I loved starting at Hotman Cup, and then I started working just with other networks, and now luckily. Um, I get to work on all the grand slams, and I've worked with so many different networks around the world, and just working alongside great people, you learn from everyone that you're in that commentary box. Whether it's Martina Navratilova or Tracy Austin or I don't know Lindsay Davenport or whoever it is that has been there and done amazing things, yeah, you can take a little bit from those moments, and hopefully you you own your own space when you commentate that you don't try to sound like somebody else, but you have your own character and you have your own. Own thoughts and and that you enjoy what you see and you build that story about that tennis match and yeah I I really enjoy what I do with the commentary
0: what's been your ultimate highlight as a a commentator I know that the last match I had the chance to call was was actually Asparti's final so you know it's hard to go past things like that but is there one that that sort of stands out along the way
1: it's really funny that that you said that I've done a lot of finals of grand slams and done a lot of great matches and I've yeah but it is funny the one match that sticks in my mind I commentated uh, Ash Barty's junior final Wimbledon win for me when she won that match I had a tear in my eye I was in I was in the commentary box with Sam Smith and I could barely talk I just knew this young girl was going to be amazing and I was so proud at that moment she was 15 years of age or 14 and a half. I mean, it was phenomenal. It's just one one match that has really stuck in my mind of being so proud and thinking, this young girl is going to be amazing.
0: And it's funny when the memories enhanced, I know when she won the Australian Open final in 2022, yeah. taking in that atmosphere at how big it was. But but now you look back on it and think, she walked off that court and, and never came back. And that was it. And it was remarkable that that, that would be the, the finale. I mean, it's a great way for it to end, but it almost adds to... To that moment, those things that you can remember in the in the broadcast box. Highlight as a coach, you mentioned that Fed Cup campaign. You did obviously a bit along the way. Is there something that stands out or or is it just more the the learning experience, as you say?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think being challenged by every every player that you work with. I think there are certain challenges along the way. The last person I I traveled with and I I coached in terms of you know on the WTA tour was Jelena Dokic and that obviously you know that was tough getting her to I guess own the space and be the person that she wanted to be. That was a big one for me. I wanted her to finish off her career, really enjoying playing tennis because I think for much of her career, it had been under sufferance, you know, and I remember, you know, one of her ex-coaches, I won't say, but he came up to me uh, probably the last year that I was coaching with Yelena. And he said, you know, just being positive to her and telling her she can do it isn't going to work. You got to provocate her and make her angry and get, Her out there so that she can compete and she'll fight for you. But being positive just isn't going to work. And I just thought that's so sad that that's possibly been a lot of her journey that she was out there with fear. And I would never want anyone to walk out on the court and have that pressure, that fear. If you can just allow someone, you know, to express themselves in every way, to be so inspired, to love the game. And I I feel in a way, very sad for Ash that, you know, probably the last six months of her life were the best six months of her tennis career. But she probably had realized that it didn't give her that significance, that that love of the game that she thought she really wanted. It. Imagine winning Wimbledon and then not having the butterflies at the end of the match and, and feeling like this was the most amazing time of, you know, your life. And then to to have to back it up and to know that she was going to probably retire after the Australian Open, I don't know how she did that. I, I honestly don't know. So amazing for her. But I guess, you know, the best moments are watching your young athletes really be good human beings as well. For me, that that's a win-win.
0: Remarkable, as you say, with with Ash, with the the 44 years of history, knowing that you're going to retire, it's probably your last chance and you're able to go out there, bottle that all up and and get it done at the same time. And you spoke about Yelena, obviously, her book's heart-wrenching and... Um, everything that she had to go through and she's made a, a tremendous fist of her transition into the media since then. But as we uh, let you go, Rally Forever, I know when, when you did some commentary with us a, a couple of years ago that you were talking to a lot of the guys downstairs, Dylan Allcott and various others and everybody embracing Rally Forever. Can you sort of tell us about the inspiration behind that and, and how you're going?
1: I never knew I was going to be that person that was going to be in the, the social kind of world out here of, of helping people. Um, I was Working at St. Kenneth's, whenever I wasn't coaching or when I wasn't commentating, I would work at a soup kitchen here in Sydney. And one Wednesday, yeah, this gentleman just came up to me and he just said, Oh, G'day, how you going? What are you What are you doing here? Why aren't you heading to Paris? And I was like, Oh, what do you mean? He goes, Oh, I've I've seen you commentated Homer Cup, and and that was Brian. That was how it all started. He just said to me, Would you play tennis with me? And I'm like, Yeah, sure, mate. And um, he said, Come and have a coffee with me at the end of lunch. And I went and sat down, and he opened up this bag, unzipped his little black bag, and there were two beautiful Wilson. What are they? The the T two thousands or the uh, I think those silver ones. The Jimmy Connors used to use those really rock hard metal rackets, and he had two of those in pristine condition and three tennis balls. Thought, God, this guy's a real diehard tennis player, and (laughs) and he just said to me, "Would you would you play tennis with me?" And I'm like, "Absolutely!" And I said, "You know, give me your number, and I'll give you a call, and and we'll set it up, you know, next week or whatever." And he said, "Oh, he said I don't I don't own a phone," and he said. I sleep in the rough down there in the bushes near Rushcutters Bay. He said, what well, What about meeting me six o'clock next Monday morning? And I was like, geez, Sunday early at six. I said, what about, what about 7 a.m.? I woke up this morning pouring rain, thought, gosh, what do I do? It's a storm. I may never see this man again. And I drove in there and here Brian was on the court. <laughs> Rain standing there with his racket and balls, just waiting for me. And four hours later, we played, and he was awesome. I saw, I saw just the life changing kind of moment for him because he he said he never had anyone to practice with he said he always um just hit on the wall and so after that he just said what time tomorrow and and that was the beginning of rally forever i a year later we we incorporated and we started the the foundation to help other people so now we just run a free community tennis program and we're reaching out to clubs and coaches all around australia to come on board give one hour a week of their of their time to give back to the community for people that are struggling with social connection or mental well-being, whether it's, yeah, anyone that's really struggling in the community, whether they've got, could be bipolar, it could be schizophrenia, it could be just low mood, it could be just loneliness. We've been working with guys that have been recently um, released out of jail with the Salvation Army and uh, it's, it's been incredible. Some of the life-changing kind of stories and the people that come and say thank you. It's phenomenal and it's been growing incredibly well and making some amazing partnerships and connections. And I, yeah, I want to get a tennis racket in every single person's hand that's never played tennis. It's never felt like they've fit into what is really perceived to be a little bit of a, an elitist sport. I want to break down every barrier to let anyone play that wants to have that opportunity. and and have fun and connect and get out in the sunshine. You know, all those benefits that tennis kind of brings, it's, it's really, it's pretty magical what happens on the court when you get a group of people together that maybe are struggling in the community, but when they start saying to each other, you're awesome, that's awesome, you can do it, that's a great shot. Good on your Roger, whatever it is. It just gives them something to look forwards to every week as well.
0: Yeah, the power of sport, the power of human spirit and how often those two things go hand in hand is quite remarkable. But uh, Lou, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you for our, our first edition of the year and uh, keep up all the wonderful work. Your, your passion for the game is, is certainly infectious and, and you've given back plenty over the journey, it's fair to say. So uh, thank you very much for your time.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok,
1: and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. In to win.